Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young boy? Probably Star Wars. I collected the action figures pretty religiously, but you know, as a kid, you would lose the guns. And so I was complaining about it. And my father said, well, write to the company and see if they'll send you some more. I wrote a letter and explained the problem. And that within like, I don't know, weeks, they sent back a box full of probably like 30 stormtrooper blasters and lasers and lightsabers and created a, a loyal fan. So Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today to kick off the new year is Jonathan Knight the SVP head of games for the New York Times. The Times games include the famous New York Times crossword puzzle, the mini crossword puzzle, Wordle, Spelling Bee, Connections, and Tiles. The New York Times is, of course, one of the oldest and most respected brands in the world. It was founded in 1851 and is now a large subscription brand with about 10 million subscribers. My guest Jonathan knows a lot about building brands with high and lasting consumer engagement and loyalty. He has been in the gaming industry for nearly 30 years, working at Activision in the early days, then Electronic Arts, where he was the senior leader on the Sims franchise. Jonathan then moved to Zynga and Warner Brothers Games before joining the New York Times Games in the fall of 2020. We talk on this show about what slower growth categories could learn from the high growth gaming category and what brand leaders at large could learn from popular and lasting game brands. This is my conversation with one of the world's greatest game makers. Here's Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the CMO Podcast and a happy new year to you and your family. And I have to ask a question. Do people make New Year's resolutions to play more games? Is that a thing? I think they do for New York Times games because New York (laughs) Times games, they feel like they're good for you. Yeah. Do you see a surge in the new year of gaming? Like, Do people give subscriptions as presents and things like that? Yeah, we do see a lot of gifts in, yeah, kind of in December and then in in January. Also, people get new phones and when they get new phones, they want to add things to them. So yeah, holiday time and New Year is always a great, a great period of engagement. Now, you are the first game maker we have had on this CMO podcast and what a game maker you are. Is there a game past or present that you look at and say, wow, I wish I had worked on that? Or I wish I'd been part of that, or I wish I had thought of that one. Wow, that's such an interesting question that I don't think anyone's ever asked me before. I, one thing that jumps to mind is I will say that the game industry is so vast that it's very difficult to answer that question. I, I often say that one game can feel as different 
from another game as games do to movies or books like it, within the game industry. But I, I think, you know, when Epic Games dropped Fortnite a number of years ago, I really felt like something big had changed in the industry. And there were a few other games like that. So I, I kind of singled them out in part because my teenage son loves Fortnite. But yeah, that was something where I went like, oh man, like the things have changed. You can't just build a game like that from scratch anymore. That's a result of decades in the making, incredible technology, incredible team. It really changed the way that like we think about multiplayer gaming, console services, mm -hmm. battle passes. It just, it was kind of seismic for the industry. So yeah, that comes to mind. Now you're the first game maker we've had on the show, but you're not the first New York Times person we've had on the show. We had your CMO, David Rubin, who also is running Wirecutter, from what I understand. We had him on the show way back in 2019. And David talked at that time, I mean, he was at Unilever, he was at Pinterest. He talked about the power of the New York Times brand and its purpose in attracting him to the Times. And I know that played a large role in your decision to join the Times. I've heard you speak about that in other venues. Could you talk about that and how that plays out and how you work with your team, how you approach your work? Yeah, it really does. I mean, the, you know, the mission at the Times is to seek the truth and help people understand the world. I feel like, you know, I've spent a long career in gaming and largely motivated by creating a high quality experience that people would pay for and, and driving business results. And that's very gratifying when you drive great business results. When you drive great business results at the New York Times, it's just an extra layer of meaning because you know that those results are going to help ensure that the journalistic mission we have remains independent well-funded and, and sort of free of, you know, the sort of stress that can come with, you know, running a tight business unit. That's, for me, what gets me out of bed in the morning. I, I was just anecdotally just yesterday down in um, Washington, D.C., I'd been invited by the D.C. Bureau to come talk to the journalists there about games. They were really excited. They're big fans. And mm -hmm. to me, it was an incredible treat. And to just be in that office, you know, a couple of blocks from the White House and to really understand how important is the work that they do and that I can help contribute to making sure that they, they continue to get the resources they need. It's, yeah, a different level of meaning. And it's great. You, know, you, you lead a pretty big team. I've heard you talk about building that team. Do you talk about the purpose of the New York Times? I mean, is it something you guys riff on how do you how do you see your role in sort of bringing it to life absolutely i think we all feel it the whole team feels it every day every week some weeks we might be more explicit about it other weeks it's just understood i think almost everybody who comes to the times came for the same reason i did and it's it's for that mission so but no we do i think week to week as we look at our results and our performance and as we Think about all the success we've had on games. It's one of the first things that comes to mind is, is, is what I just said. And I think everybody on the team feels that. Do you talk about within your business unit games, do you talk about a purpose that inspires you that's sort of under the umbrella of the New York Times? Yeah, our, our vision on games is we want to be the premier subscription destination for digital puzzles, full stop. And that vision really inspires everybody. What does that mean? Well, it means that you know we want to be a place where we just bring joy to millions of people. We want to mm -hmm. be really focused on quality and, and innovation and surprising and delighting users. We want to be constantly evolving. We want to be the best place to work. 
you know, we we want to be available for people to play across all service all surfaces wherever you know if they want to play in the app or part of the news product it means a lot of things to us to to be premier and it also means that we're driving great results so that's the vision for games being part of the broader bundle is you know kind of comes in over the top of that if we can create more value for new york times subscribers if they can engage in both games and news we know that that you know, is sort of like the best long-term subscriber retention profile as people who are engaging with both news and games. So, you know, kind of fitting into that that larger bundle and, and you know, the vision for the New York Times product is to be the essential subscription and we play a big role in that. So, you, know, you talked about joy and I have to admit and disclose up front that I'm not an avid gamer, but my wife is off the charts. So before she even gets out of bed in the morning, she has finished. And I'm, I literally, I hear it next to me, you know, before the lights are on. She's finished Wordle. She's finished Quartal. She's finished Doctordal. She's finished Connections. She's finished the Spelling Bee. And then she pops up, gets some coffee, and starts on the crossword puzzle. So you are a big part of her life. She looks at the new games coming. And my question is, is it unusual to have a couple that one's a gamer and one's not? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of people in the world, right? I, I do think that playing games is, and I believe this really deeply, I think it is part of what makes us humans. I, you know, we've been playing games as a species for a very long time. And I do think it it is a mark of becoming civilized as as a species. I, I think everyone is a gamer. And I think we often kind of throw the word gamer around and sometimes it can be a little pejorative or, you know, it might conjure a, a teenager, yeah. you know, slouched in a gaming chair for six hours a day, you know, with a headset. But the reality is we have a deep need for play as a species and games come in all types and all shapes and meet all kinds of needs for all kinds of people. I think what our games do in particular is, you know, they're they're sort of smart fun. They really challenge your brain. They, you know, a lot of people like your wife play first thing in the morning to kind of wake their brain up. You feel a sense of achievement when you solve a mm -hmm. puzzle. It's sort of that rush of excitement. I, I figured out the answer and that stimulates the brain. And we do see people focused on trying to get better at our puzzles over time. And we think we're feeling a lot of great needs. I think we also satisfy kind of a social need, a need to share. And Wordle is probably the best example of oh, that, yeah. where we see so many millions of people every day still sharing their Wordle scores. Yeah, I'm on the text chain. I see it every day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, I, you know, I, I do think these needs are, are fundamental. And, you know, if you don't play our games, I'm sure there's games you play, even though you don't think yourself think yourself as a gamer. Yeah, that's true. I just played your pictures game this morning. I don't know if your team put that out. Faces, the faces. We're recording a little bit before Christmas and you released the faces quiz. And I played that this morning. How many faces can you recognize? And there were like 50 or 60 of them. And I also do your weekly quiz. I love that. Kind of keeps me up to date. So yeah, you're right. I probably play more games than I know. So Jonathan, I want to talk a bit about your role. You've been in this gaming business, I think, for like 30 years. And you work for some of the major drivers of the industry, right? Activision, EA, Zynga, now the New York Times. And it's an industry with an unbelievable growth rate. I think total revenue globally is now like 400 billion US dollars. So it's an enormous category. So what could 
CEOs and CMOs in slower growth industries, many of which I've worked in at Procter & Gamble, what could they learn from this incredible category growth story over the last several decades? Look, video video games, I, I, I mean, I have been really blessed to be in this industry. It's been a ton of fun. It, it is a fast-growing industry. You know, it, it's it's also a very competitive one. And so when you know, you see a lot of success and growth and profits. You also see a lot of layoffs and a lot of cancellations. And that's been the nature of the business for a long time. So it is very dynamic. So you kind of enter it at your own peril. I think it is fundamentally a very unique intersection of technology and entertainment. Can't underestimate the the importance and the power of the technology shifts that sort of underlie what happens in games and what kind of powers the innovation and the growth. And, you know, I mentioned Fortnite earlier when something like Fortnite lands and, you know, it just has a huge financial impact on the industry, but also in and of itself creates just all new innovation. Like this is built upon years and decades worth of, of technology shifts and technology changes. And the, and the tech is moving at a breakneck speed. You know, in the film industry, you have companies like Pixar that were able to really harness an intersection of creativity and technology in a way that, you know, for video games, that that's been what what we've been doing from the very beginning. So I think that's what what powers the change, whether it was from PlayStation 1 to PlayStation 2, you might see incredible leaps in graphics and physics, you know, what Epic is doing with their engine. But you also see and have seen, I think, over you know, the last 10, 15 years, you know, the connectivity, the rate at which people are able to come together socially, mm-hmm. bandwidth and latency and, and just incredible technology advances in that area enable people to create all these experiences that they just couldn't even have, you know, five years earlier. And and now with what's happening in AI, you're going to see, you know, yet another sort of innovation wave. I think that just keeps everybody on their toes. It keeps the experiences fresh and exciting for consumers and powers this amazing growth. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. And it's also a category that, you know, has built some amazing brands, right? That has stood the test of time. And you know them better than I do, but you worked on The Sims, right? You worked on The Sims 4. You talked about Fortnite, Call of Duty, League of Legends, Grand Theft, New York Times Crossword. So these aren't flashes in the pan, right? Many of these, what, the New York Crossword is 80 years old or something like that? Yeah, it's over 80 years old. 1942 was the first the first Sunday Crossword in the paper. Yeah. So what what's been the... I don't know, playbook or common characteristics of building these brands that have lasted. And for the CMOs who are listening and 
others who work on brands, you know, kind of what could they learn from this fast moving category, which is kind of changing all the time. These are franchises that someone has kept very healthy and vibrant and growing over many, many years. Well, my perspective on, you know, what makes a great franchise is is definitely more sort of product centric. I think at the end of the day, it's all about quality and the consumer promise of a of a really high quality experience and just an intense focus on delivering the best possible experience. But I think with franchises, it's also about sort of understanding the core pillars of your franchise, the franchise identity. You know, what is that kind of unspoken agreement between you and the consumer about what they can expect in, you know, kind of the next iteration of the franchise. And, you know, one of the projects I worked on was the Sims 2 at EA. It's one of, you know, and anybody who worked on that will often call it one of, you know, the highlights of their career. And it was for me, I think we really knocked it out of the park with the Sims 2. I came into that franchise after the Sims 1 had already launched and become kind of a phenomenon. It was the best-selling PC game of all time at that time. And, you know, sequeling that and turning it into a franchise as opposed to just, you know, a single game that did really well, you know, was a really, really difficult task. And and we had to spend weeks and months and, and you know, just around the clock, really deeply understanding what the core identity of that franchise was. You know, what fantasy are we fulfilling for people? What are our unique competitive advantages and what will expectations of consumers be when they come to the sequel and you know it is a a combination of delivering the expected the the traditional the values that you're known for but also keeping it fresh and bringing innovation because if you just do the same thing over and over and over people get bored and i think that's you know there's a lot of art and a lot of science that goes into figuring out that balance and you need to stay really close to users and consumers and talk to them all the time and kind of understand. But you also need to push the boundaries and do things that they're not necessarily asking for that they don't know they want. And all along, make sure that you're, like I said, sort of staying out in front of the technology that's powering all of this and the innovations that technological changes can unlock for you. So, but I think those, you know, core brand values and you can work really closely and partner with, with marketing, with brand, you know, as a product team to codify those things and say, you know, these are our three pillars or these are our five creative filters, or this is our identity, however you want to frame it and make sure that's really tight. And that what you're going out to the world with in terms of marketing truly reflects what what the product really is and that there's no daylight between you know what you're saying to consumers and then what you're actually delivering in terms of the experience actually that process you just described sounds a lot like people who manage tide pampers toyota levi's you know all those great consumer brands it sounds very very similar and then there's the global part of it right to be sure that if it's a global game you're bringing in the global teams you're understanding the various cultures, how the game will resonate in the various cultures. That's the that's the interesting part and the complexity part of it. That's right. Now let's talk a little bit about your specific role at New York Times Games. You've been there three plus years. Tell us a bit a bit about how you spend your time. Where do you focus? What's a day in the life of Jonathan? Well, as yeah, as the general manager for games, I think I have a, a unique role inside the company. We're organized along functional lines, engineering, product management, product design, 
production, data, marketing, and so forth. And as a general manager, you sort of cut horizontally across all of those functions. And, you know, as a result, you're often leading through influence. And I think my number one job is to provide a vision for the team that is compelling, that's exciting, that's motivating, and that we, you know, sort of can all share. And keeping everybody focused on a shared vision of the future, the future state of our product, the goals that we have, kind of where we're headed and and our, our North Stars, that's what I spend or try to spend as much of my time as possible doing. So that's one aspect of it. I think there's an operational aspect as well. There's just a lot of like resource management. Do we have the right people in the right place? Are we well-funded against these initiatives? Are we prioritizing the right things you know, at the right time? What are the dependencies? How do we keep a large team functional and the communication happening? And, you know, game making is a, is a real team sport and software engineers, designers, marketers, producers, product managers, they all come from different backgrounds, different, you know, they kind of stand on different street corners of the same intersection that we're all working against. And so it, it really does require, you know, a lot of time and care to make sure that the teams have what they need, that the communication's flowing and that the velocity of the team, the rate at which we're shipping things, you know, that all of that is sort of humming along. So, you know, so that's kind of, I think, the second part operationally. You know, and then finally, like I, I think sharing our story, you know, I do a lot of of talking throughout the company. I do a lot of kind of aligning executive management with my team across different missions. There's just a lot of communication that needs to happen. And so I, I can be a bit of an evangelist as well for games. How has your role evolved since you arrived? Well, you know, the team has gotten a lot bigger. You know, we've definitely, I would say, doubled the team in the last three years. So that part has changed. I think, you know, within my team, there's a lot more synergy alignment, a lot more sort of like shared work that that's all rolling up together. I, I think when I first arrived, things were a little more siloed. And so that's exciting. You know, games, after we acquired Wordle, like, that the business just really took off. We 10x the size of our audience. So I think in a post-Wordle world, the profile of games inside the company mm-hmm. really went way up. And the impact that we're having on the overall enterprise is really felt much more strongly now than it was just a few years ago. Although, you know, we've been on a continuum that goes back long before I joined of a healthy growing games subscription business. And of course, the crossword has an incredible history. So I do feel like I'm, you know, I kind of came into a river that was already flowing, but, Mm -hmm. but definitely with Wordle and now connections, you know, content can be just such a powerful catalyst to, to the vision that we have. So I attended a board of directors meeting earlier this year. I wasn't doing that three years ago. So, you know, the profile has changed and, and that's really exciting for, for me, but also for the whole team. I mean, they just, they're here for the times, they're here for the mission and to to have games having a, a bigger impact at the enterprise level is just super exciting. Now, Wordle, I, I remember when you acquired Wordle and it seemed to happen very quickly. And as you said, it seemed like it has been a smashing success. That doesn't happen with a lot of acquisitions, right? More fail than, than help. 
And the acquisitions I've been a part of, when we went in with an open mind, an open ears, a collaborative mindset, we learned from the company we were buying. We integrated the capabilities in a smart way. We weren't arrogant. And I'd like you to speak a little bit about why this has gone so well. Yeah, great question. And it has gone well. And you're absolutely right. These things can often not go well. I mean, first of all, it was a very simple acquisition. So we we acquired an asset. We did not acquire a company. The creator of the game, Josh Wardle, had other things he wanted to go do. He was really excited about his future. And so him personally being part of the Times wasn't kind of on his dance card. So that was clear from the beginning. And so it really became an asset purchase. And he was incredibly gracious about the transition and was was very available throughout that whole process. But, you know, I think we were really clear about the scope of what we were doing and what we were buying and the reasons we were buying it, you know. And so I think that really that really helped. We, you know, we acquired an incredible asset and an incredible game, but also a massive audience. And and that going in was the, you know, the clarity around that goal that we were going to, you know, 10x the audience on games, well, even more than that. And bring such a massive audience of tens of millions of people to the NewYorkTimes.com domain and that we would be able to introduce that audience as a funnel to our premium games, to other experiences. So that was the, the thesis and the premise. And so we were laser focused in the beginning on making sure that we delivered on that, that we harnessed the audience, that we didn't have a big disruption in that. So you know, our goals were clear. And then I would say, secondly, with regards to the game itself, we, we took the approach of kind of do no harm, like for, especially for the first several months of the project, we were ruthless about not changing the experience of Wordle. I think we updated the font slightly to rec to, to, to be sort of a New York times font, but throughout that initial period, we just worked really, really hard to, you know, this was, this was an internet treasure, right? This, this, this game felt like it belonged to the internet. It didn't belong to anyone. And, and, you know, when we came along to buy it, you know, and we're the New York times, I think, you know, but we're still a corporation and, and, you know, we still need to drive profits to help fund the mission. And so I think there was skepticism and concern from sort of the community at large that we were going to take something from them that we would ruin it somehow. And, we really wanted to, to make it clear from the beginning that, that we weren't going to do that. And, and I think we, we did. And I think we were able to satisfy those concerns. And, you know, the game didn't change. It, it remained free for everyone to play. And that was intentional. And it did its job as just this incredible new funnel for us. So, but we, we were very careful not to change it. And, you know, in the end, I think those are all the reasons that it's gone well. We, we also you know, made access to Wordle much easier for people. Mm -hmm. We brought it into the games app. We brought it into the news app. We, you know, we put an optional registration on it so that if you wanted to create an account, you could, you didn't have to, but if you did, that meant that your stats and streaks were preserved. And so we brought a lot of value to, while still keeping it free and open for everyone. And, and I think those are all the reasons it's worked. And we're really pleased today with the level of continued engagement with Wordle, it remains very high, very stable. And yeah, it's just had an awesome impact on everything. Every great brand is built on a deep consumer insight, sometimes obvious, sometimes not. What would you say the deep consumer insight that Wordle has been based on that's made it such a breakaway success? Well, I think there's a few things. One, it's, it's a very approachable 
puzzle. It, it's got just such broad appeal and it, it's really for everyone. The, the word that you're trying to guess, the five letter word is deliberately a common word. You know, the word list is made up of words that we know everyone knows. And there's a big sort of story about how the creator of the game kind of came up with the solution set. But, you know, it was deliberate that these should be this should be a fun puzzle that everybody can do and that everybody can solve. And whether you solve it in two or six, you know, we see that over 90% of people solve Wordle every day that that start it. So that was number one. The second thing is that we're it's a shared experience. You know, we're all trying to guess that same word together. And so that when you do solve it, you know, and you share that experience and that little sort of grid of green and yellow squares, it kind of tells a a story about how you solved the, mm-hmm. the word that day and everybody's story is a little different, but the solution is the same. And so it really kind of brought everybody together and it, it still does to this day, you know, just in a world in which we all need a few things that we can all agree on and that we can all be a part of together. Like it, it really did. And, you know, from, and, and it just kind of, it was wild. Right. I mean, I remember watching CNN and seeing, you know, Anderson Cooper interview, Monica Lewinsky about like her daily Wordle habit. And, you know, we see like Bill Gates writing blogs about Wordle. It, it's just been wild the way it just sort of brought the whole world together around something really fun. But, you know, it's also finally, I would say it's really well done. It's just a fun game to play. It's a fun game design. The way that when you guess a word and then it sort of shows you what you got wrong and right, and and then it sort of reveals another puzzle and th- that, and then you try to guess again and then you learn something new and it reveals like yet another puzzle for you. So it's, it's a, it's a really fun game in that like as you play, the, the way that it gives you feedback kind of changes it. And I think that that was very clever. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Let's flip back and talk about your career path a bit. You majored in drama with a minor in math at Colorado College. I suspect you may have been the only one majoring in drama with a minor in math at Colorado College. And then at, at some point you went back and got a master's in directing at Boston University. So how'd you wind up in gaming? Yeah, you're going way back. I mean, this is like a former life kind of stuff. And, you know, when I was in undergraduate school, you'd be surprised at the amount of overlap between the theater nerds and the math nerds. There was something about that. We, there were actually a few of us. But no, I got bit by the theater bug early in high school and, you know, over time sort of evolved into a little more of like a director producer type. And I was the president of our student theater organization. I really just had kind of a passion for creating creating something from a blank, a blank slate you know i just i really love a blank canvas i like the risk associated with that and the just the satisfaction of starting with a, a script and a cast and and working through a production of rehearsals and then bringing together all the elements of lighting and set design and sound and costumes and props and 
and of course the actors and the script to just sort of create an experience that was live for people. I mean, it was, it was so exciting. I also just had a parallel interest in technology. You know, my father had three boys and he was very focused when we were, you know, as, as soon as we could type, he was very focused on us having computer literacy. And I learned to code at a young age. And so for me, it was just sort of like two streams. And I think as I thought about you know, getting a job and making a living, directing plays was, you know, it's just like and remains today an incredibly competitive landscape. And you can work for decades before you really make it. But I did have this technology and sort of entertainment you know, sort of dual stream back when that was not cool the way it is today and mm-hmm. um, was able to, I think, you know, and I always encourage people to find the intersection of two things that you're good at. And I think that's that's what happened with me. So I just had an opportunity, kind of a random opportunity to start out as a producer on video games where I could, you know, employ my creativity and the skills that I'd learned as a director, but with digital actors and trying to bring together programmers instead of lighting designers and, you know, 3D modelers instead of costume designers and bring them all together to create something. So, you know, there was more parallel there than you might think. And then I just sort of went from there and and the rest is history. You met our producer on the show, Judy, before we went live on this on this podcast. I want to bring her into this conversation. She worked at Marvel for many years, and I am sure she has some questions for you about what you just spoke about and and everything we spoke about in the podcast. So I'd like Judy to jump in here and, and turn it over to you. You can have the microphone for a bit, Judy. Thanks, Jim. Well, Jonathan, I'm super fascinated with the fact that you came from sort of looking to do to film to TV to gaming. I'd love to sort of just understand what was gaming like back then, because I think everyone's super aware of like, especially nowadays, I think most people have a kid that plays Fortnite. How has like gaming evolved since the early 90s into like now and like being a part of it? What was that like? Yeah, it's barely recognizable. I mean, I think we didn't you know, and there's always pioneers that came before and before and before. So I don't want to pretend I was there at the very beginning. I, I came in before, just just right before CD-ROMs hit, the Nintendo was still like 32-bit and was about to go to 64-bit. But, you know, there were there were people who came before me where, you know, it was a single programmer making a single game on, a, on, a, on an Atari cartridge. And so already by the time I started working in games, teams were getting bigger and the technology was getting better. And that's really, like I said earlier, that's sort of the story of, of games is just this almost Moore's law of, of innovation and technology just at, at an incredible speed so that you would look back and go, I can't, you know, five years have gone by and, and the games are just not recognizable anymore. The pace of change and, and graphical fidelity and, and physics and the size and scale of teams working against these things, it just you know, it grew astronomically and, but, you know, you were just sort of in it and not necessarily seeing it with that perspective. But I think, you know, also when I started out, you know, my parents were like, really, you know, that's what you're going to do. It was not considered a real, you know, it was still considered kind of maybe a cottage industry or something really risky and weird. You know, of course now it's, you know, whatever, three, two, three, four hundred billion dollar industry, depending on how you count. So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was wild. It was fun. It was a little bit of wild west. I think the one thing I would say is again, the the technology, when the CD-ROM came along, you suddenly could put all of this content on to a single disc. And so, you know, suddenly 
texture map sizes went up. You could do full motion video. You could do real sound and audio. And so for me, I became a producer and, you know, teams had gone from one programmer to five people to 10 people to 25 people very, very quickly. And so, you know, in the kind of early 90s, the the game producer was born and you needed a function that could suddenly bring together a team of 2025 around a shared vision, a shared schedule, shared deliverables, and sort of represent the final user experience that you were trying to create. And I just sort of fell nicely into that role and and it just kind of grew from there. I mean, as a producer, as sort of like a leader of a team, how did you make sure that you stayed sort of knowledgeable of the technology as it evolved? Because it has, you know, going back to Super Nintendo, I mean, I remember I played that and now to having a PS5, I mean, the technology and the teams, I mean, how did you stay ahead of the game, if you could? I studied computer science in school. I could code. I couldn't code professionally. But in, when I first got started, I was able to get a little bit of street cred from engineers just because I could speak their language and I kind of understood what they were up against. I mean, for me, engineers, technologists, they're the wizards of our industry. And you know, if you don't know how to do what they do, then you really need to have like a, a deep respect for it. And so I tried all along, you know, sometimes I was better at it than others for sure. But I tried all along to really partner with with engineering and technology to, you know, both push and challenge and try to unlock what was happening. If we were moving to a new console, like what can we do to, to unlock the power of that console? You know, if PCs were getting more RAM if if the disks were could fit more stuff on it. You know, I was always pushing for like, how can we take advantage of these new capabilities? You know, but also with the respect of, you know, if you push too hard, you push too far, you can kind of break things. And and then, you know, it sort of comes back to engineering, like, hey, you know, our stuff looks bad. It's not working the way it should, but it's because <laughs> producers push us a little too hard. So I think, you know, that was just always an important balance. And Art comes into that as well and sound and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, I just tried to stay close with engineering, respect that I couldn't do anything without them, but also, you know, give them things to chase and create a vision for them that excited them. You know, engineers primarily want to do work that's exciting and they want to do work that feels important and they want to push boundaries. So, um, you know, aligning the whole team around those things is, is yeah, what I tried to do. Okay, I have one final question, then I'll give it back to Jim. Obviously, it's sort of a topic within gaming of sort of being more inclusive. But I think that's interesting that a lot more women tend to play mobile games. I think it's more accessible currently. I mean, especially at the New York Times, I would say most of the people that I know who play games for the New York Times are predominantly women. What was it like from you going from sort of console PC gaming to sort of something like that with mobile? Like, how did you adapt to make sure that the game still stayed very inclusive and available for everyone. Well, you know, I've kind of leaned casual my whole career. So I like casual games. That's a little bit more where my insights are, I think, and my instincts. And so, you know, when I was electronic arts and and working on The Sims, that franchise was really a pioneer in being more accessible to to women, to non-gamers, to young people you know, we were making a game for everyone and it's a game about people for people. And it was more of a 
a kind of software toy than it was a game. And it wasn't powered by leaderboards and competition and trying to, you know, destroy one another. It was about sort of unleashing your creativity to make a little digital family. And if you wanted to play more competitively, you could like, how rich can I get my Sims? How quickly? And, (laughs) you know, or you could just play it as a dollhouse and like, some people would just kill the Sims and only build a house. So there were all kinds of ways you could play that. And that, that was part of kind of the brand value and the gestalt of the Sims. And I was personally really drawn to that. You know, what I found when I got to Maxis in early 2000s was, you know, a studio that was being run by a woman, uh, even though Will Wright was sort of stood up as the creator of the game. And he was, and and Will was incredibly important in the founding of Maxis and SimCity and everything else. I don't want to discount that, but like the untold story is Connor Ryan's and Roxy Wolosinko and, and, and Claire, like these women that collaborated with Will to create the Sims, you know, these female designers and executive producer and studio head. So like that from day one for me was, you didn't even need to think about it or talk about it or even try. Like this was a game, you know, by women for, for women. And I felt lucky to be part of it. You know, I did work on some things that were more kind of hardcore, more tailored for for male gamers, but I I was always drawn to those types of experiences and was really lucky to be surrounded by just incredibly talented female game makers. And I, I would say at Zynga, I worked on Farmville, which you know, from that that game sort of unlocked a whole new female audience. We called it the Farmville Mom, you know, Sally from Ohio who didn't play any other games but suddenly had access to this super fun game on Facebook. So we we also worked really hard to kind of put Sally from Ohio, who was like our fictional consumer, you know, persona, to put her at the center of all of our decisions. And there were many incredible female leaders that made the Farmville Farmville franchise what it was and I don't know. I I think for me, it's important to know your consumer and and you know to know who you're making the games for and to have those deep insights and to believe in them yourself. And and it's also important to create an inclusive culture on the game team itself and an environment where you know I like to think I you know as a leader, even though I'm not a woman, I created an environment that a lot of women liked to work in. So I'm very focused on the work, the consumer, the users, let's do what's right for them and everything else is just noise. And yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate to have worked with so many great women. Judy, is this making you homesick for Marvel, this discussion? Uh, a little bit, sort of off the point, but that I used to host the Women of Marvel podcast. I'll just say one final thing that was the story that we always said at Marvel was that there's always been women in comics, just like there's always been women in games. I think it's just nowadays we're, there's finally platforms for them. So that was such a lovely answer. Judy, before you leave, though, you should you should share with Jonathan, our listeners, you're working on a book. I am working on a book all about cosplay. It's called Cosplay the Marvel Way, and it comes out on June 18th, 2024. So, okay, I'm going to hand this back over to Jim. Thanks, Jonathan. Great, Judy. Hey, Jonathan, before we leave your role, of the many roles you've had at these amazing companies, which one has been, for you, most developmental? Where do you feel like you really took a big step in your evolution as a leader, person? Well, I mean, I think all of them, and I think the New York Times, maybe, maybe more than any, you know, for me, like one of the biggest leaps that I've made, it's just a very different kind of organization and company. I've been in kind of West Coast Silicon Valley style companies for a long time to move to an East Coast media company was a big transition to a company that has a much bigger and broader mission, like we talked about than just gaming profits. And, you know, also, frankly, like I joined during the pandemic 
and as a as a remote leader needing to bring a team together during that time to also build the team and bring new people into it to kind of reshape the strategy to set like a, a bigger vision and to kind of organize all of that through this little tiny screen and and build trust with people that definitely taught me a lot and I I learned it a ton about that and and how to get better at that and it was difficult in the beginning. So I think, you know, yeah, 2020 was a pretty transformative year for me. It's one of the bigger challenges that I've had in my career. And I've been so grateful for like mentorship along the way and for all of the learning experiences. And, and, you know, I definitely think I'm, you know, a more seasoned and, you know, empathetic and, and successful leader as a result of it. A lot of people go through a transition. I guess we all do, really. As you, as you, you were, you're a game maker. I've heard you call yourself a game maker, right? You're a creator. You're a producer. You build things. You make things. And now you're a leader, right? You're overseeing a team. Was that transition challenging? Are there any insights from how you made that transition that might help others? Well, I mean, I've gone through it. You know, at, at Zynga, I, I led 300 people at the time that I I left. I mean, my whole career, I, I'd be leading a team of 100 people at Electronic Arts. And then when we shipped our product, I'd sort of peel off and I'd have a group of five people. And then I would leave that lead that group of five people uh, and be very hands-on until we sort of had something that sort of gained momentum. And then one day you wake up and it's back up to 100 and, and you're sort of building teams. And then when the game's done, you know, things are happening and people go off and do other stuff. And then you're kind of putting bands back together. When I went from EA to Zynga, the big transition there was to becoming what I would call like a full stack GM. At EA, we were, as executive producers, we were basically content creators that, you Mm -hmm. know, make an incredible piece of content and give it to sales and marketing, right? You know, what Zynga did that was so incredible at that time was sort of transform casual gaming into a direct-to-consumer business and using Facebook as the platform for that. And of course, the app store would kind of come in over the top of that and, and really blow it up. But, you know, that transition of uh, to, to a full stack GM that wasn't just making content, but was running a business and that growth and monetization, these things were needed to be part of your game design from the beginning. And you were responsible, not just for making something, but for, for making it, 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 it profitable. And then you have consumer insights and you have customer support and um, all of those things and community management, those things all became sort of, integral in addition to, you know, engineering and design and, and art. So that was like the probably the biggest leap I made as a leader. And a lot of folks who were kind of migrating from electronic arts to Zynga went through that and and some didn't didn't make it and didn't survive that. And and it was certainly hard for the rest of us, but I just learned a ton and I'm super grateful for my time at Zynga because of that that transformation. And you know, I think to try to answer your question, I mean it's it's tough because People who've worked with me know I'm I'm pretty hands-on and opinionated. And, you know, often it's like, hey, you're leading this really big group of people. Like, why are you caring about this little tiny detail? You're micromanaging it. And I, you know, it, it is something that I, I work on all the time, try, trying to find that balance between we've got to empower people and give them higher level goals and, and give them the space and creativity to run at that. That's what I look for from, you know, my bosses. So I really empathize with that and spend a lot of time doing that, you know, at the same time, sometimes you have to lead by example. And if you've got a vision, sometimes you need to kind of get in there with the team and, and be more hands-on. And, and, you know, if the ship is heading in a slightly wrong direction, you do have to kind of like 
pull it over and make sure we're all kind of on the same page. So I don't know that I have any um, <laughs> like great answer to that or a perfect formula. I certainly am better at it some days than others, but that's that's the balance that I I try to achieve. Let's flip into the creative brief at the close of the show. And the first question is, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young boy? Probably Star Wars. I would say most certainly Star Wars. I was like a big Star Wars fan for a very long time. I've had a more complicated relationship with Star Wars in recent years, but yeah. I collected the action figures pretty pretty religiously. But you know, as a kid, you would lose the guns, the little weapons, the little plastic weapons that yeah. come with them all the time. And so I was complaining about it. And my father said, well, write to the company and see if they'll send you some more guns. And I thought, oh, what, you know, I'd have to pay for them. And what's this all about? He just encouraged me. So I, I wrote a letter and explained the problem. And that within like, I don't know, weeks, four or five weeks, they sent back a box full of probably like 30 wow. stormtrooper blasters and lasers and lightsabers. And I thought that's really customer support. You know, they created a, a loyal a loyal fan. So that's a good early lesson for a business person. How about if I phrase the question of what's your first gaming brand and impact on your life as a young boy? What would that be? I think Zork, right up there with Wizardry, maybe Wizardry a little higher. Mm -hmm. So these are early Apple II computer mm -hmm. games that a lot of people won't remember. But Infocom was the company that made Zork. Zork 1, Zork 2, Zork 3. So that's probably the first gaming franchise that I was aware of. And it was all text based. And as a result of being text-based, it kind of, you created the world in your head. And so it, it, you know, it was sort of much bigger than, than what was on the page. And that was, that was kind of cool. What gaming character do you most identify with? Oh, that's too hard, man. <laughs> too hard of a question. I'm going to kind of dodge that question because I think the games that I have most enjoyed put me as the hero of the game, as opposed to me playing a character. There's obviously a lot of great video game characters. I was not a Mario kid, but I liked strategy games, simulation games, games where I was sort of like the creator and the controller of, of everything. And so that's why that's a hard question for me to answer. I love that answer. It's a great answer. It's a great insight behind great games, right? You've been part of so many highly creative and productive teams. Many of our listeners struggle to you know, maximize the creativity and effectiveness of the teams they lead. What's been the common characteristic or a theme of these amazing teams that you've been a part of over your career that have created these amazing creative products? I think the number one thing that comes to mind for me is like, you have to care. You know? And I like to work with people who care. I care deeply and I like to, you know, surround myself with people that just care about the product, the quality and the experience, not just a little, but a lot. And, you know, almost obsessively take pride in what you're making and what you're putting out there to every last detail, every pixel, every interaction, kick it around inside the team, debate it, research it, iterate, you know, not good enough. We can do better. We owe it to people like that sense of really caring. When I interviewed for the job as a, as a producer on the Sims, which, you know, I really wanted that job and the Sims was really blowing up. And so it was kind of coveted. And I, my, my friend, Tim Letourneau, who was the senior producer on the franchise, you know, he interviewed me and he told me later that it was one question that got me the job. And his question was like, what scares you about coming to work here? And I said to him, I said, 
I'm terrified that I'll fuck up the Sims mm, <laughs> because yeah. I care so much about it. He was like, okay, that's a good answer. You've got that's the a guy, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I do, I just, that's, that's, that's it at the end of the day. I just, I care deeply about the quality of the work. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? It's so cheesy, but I will say Steve Jobs, and I, it's like such a probably groaner of an answer. But you know, <laughs> I after he died, you know, I got the Walter Isaacson, Isaacson yeah. um, biography, and I wept like a baby reading mm-hmm. that book. And my wife was like, "Why are you crying at the Steve Jobs biography?" She thought she thought I was so peculiar for that. But for me, those kind of early titans of Silicon Valley, or whatever you might want to call it, I mean, Silicon Valley is too restrictive but you know the the bill gates the steve jobs those guys were they were my superheroes like i wasn't all that into batman and superman and like i didn't read comics like i just thought what they were doing to revolutionize the world i don't know like the geeks finally were getting you know the geeks shall inherit the earth kind of thing but i really feel that that jobs had you know for all of his faults i just continue to be inspired by the trajectory of his vision, you know, mm-hmm. to, and, and it wasn't just the iPod or the iPhone. I mean, his story of, of how he believed in Pixar is, is probably one of the most undertold stories about his, his career, you know, just 10 years of like hemorrhaging money to say, no, 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 there will be a 100% digitally rendered feature film one day at a time when people were like, that's impossible, you know, and uh, who would watch that? But I just think he had the long-term vision of the future and then the patience to execute it at high quality to me is something that I kind of aspire to. And he was the epitome of caring. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people were on sort of the bad end of how much he cared and the sort of mm-hmm. the, the sometimes the, the harshness that with which maybe he treated people. But, you know, but those who cared as much as he did, you know, tell incredible stories about how they never wanted to work for anyone else. So it's a complicated topic. But, yeah, he was the epitome of caring, caring about the consumer experience. Yeah. No, I know a lot of people at TBWA, Shia Day, who he worked with for, you know, the marketing and communication. And they say exactly what you're saying. You know, he was difficult at times, but he cared and he made you better and the work got better. Jonathan. We're going to wrap this up. Thank you. This has been a a lovely New Year's present for me and for our listeners. Uh, I wish you a great year. Uh, my wife's really rooting for you. If you ever want to pull her into a focus group, she would be happy to do it. She's she's counting on you for continuing to wake her up in the morning and bring her joy. Well, we do have a new beta game. It's not digits. It's one that no one knows about yet. But tell her to keep an eye out. She will. In the new year, we'll have some new some new games coming for her to play. That was my Happy New Year discussion with Jonathan Knight. Three lessons from this one for your business brand and life as you start 2024. The first one is Jonathan talked about power of great games is that they are accessible, approachable, and inclusive. Now, isn't that a lesson for anyone trying to build any brand? Second takeaway, a key driver of successful games and the entire gaming category is the power of shared experiences. When you put something into the market that people can share and feel proud of and feel like they're part of a community, great things happen. Again, something that many of our brand leaders who are out there listening need to think about for your brand, whatever category you're in. And the third lesson, and maybe the most powerful one of this discussion, is when I asked Jonathan about the characteristic of really creative, effective teams, he simply said, 
they care a lot. They care a lot about what they're doing. They care about the craft. They care about the impact they will have on people's lives. So the secret to creativity and effectiveness, caring. Great lesson for all of us to take into the new year. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.